We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. He's faithful, church. Amen. Sometimes we just need a good old-fashioned reminder of that, right? It's, we know intellectually, we know that He is faithful, but we come together collectively, and it is wonderful to be reminded of how many times over and over and over again our God has shown Himself to be faithful in our lives, in our church, and throughout all eternity. So we worship a faithful God this morning as we take our Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 will be in verses 12 through 15 this morning. As you're taking a moment to turn there, if you are a guest with us, we are thrilled to have you. We've been walking through a series called Our Great and Glorious Hope. We are studying the books of First and Second Thessalonians together, and you are here on a great Sunday to worship with us and to study God's Word together. As you're finishing up finding First Thessalonians 5, um, how many of you in here have ever had an issue with fire ants? I'm positive there were no fire ants before the fall. Um, fire ants have to be the result of sin. Uh, fire ants are one of the most diabolical creations uh, ever known to man. And if you have them in your yard, they're almost impossible to get rid of. Um, and they are you can kill them and they will move. Now, I have some stuff I can tell you about after service and it'll kill those little boogers. Uh, I mean, it is, it is rough. But if you've ever spent any time trying to get rid of them, you know how resilient they are. You also know how dangerous they are, how painful that they can be. But did you know that it is impossible to drown fire ants? You can drown a single fire ant but you cannot drown an entire colony of fire ants. And the reason is, if you try to drown one fire ant, you can drown him. He will go to the bottom and he will drown. But if you have a group of fire ants, and some of you have seen this, have you ever seen a group of fire ants floating across a lake, floating across a river? Often, anytime something is flooded, often you will look up and you will see a flotilla, flotilla of fire ants just going across the tops of the water. And the reason is they have a survival mechanism that's built into them that even though they can't do it alone, that if they come together, they can actually interlock their limbs and they have a, a sticky place on the inside of their limbs where they can interlock their limbs, get together, and then collectively when they come together, they're able to form air bubbles with their body to allow them to float over the top of the water till they eventually get to dry land. It's really an incredible thing to see and watch, and it's one of the marvels of creation that an ant can, not only can it colonize like it can colonize, but its will to live, its will to survive, and it realizes that it needs to come together to collectively to be able to do so. Friends, I want you to know that there are many attacks that are on the church right now. There are many of you individually who are under attack right now. There are many of you who are struggling right now. And the key to survival, when it feels like we're drowning, whether it feels like we're drowning because of discouragement or persecution or temptation or whatever it is that attempts to drown you, the key to it is knowing how we are going to come together and that we as the church need to link ourselves together in a way in which we can survive the floods and the storms that life is going to bring about. 
As we've been walking through 1 Thessalonians together, we're transitioning now in the last part of chapter 5 to some very practical advice. In fact, Paul is now telling the church at Thessalonica what life in the church should look like or how we should live together as the church because of the gospel. So today, you're going to see our big idea as we read together is that we must prioritize Jesus. And to prioritize Jesus, we have to prioritize his family. Before we stand together and read, I want you to hear this. It is wonderful to say that you love Jesus, and I pray that you do love Jesus, but it is impossible to love Jesus and not love Jesus' family. Jesus says the church is the bride of Christ. The, Jesus says that the church is the family of God. So we are called in worship not only to love the God of the church, but we are called to love the people of the church. And we are here shown how that should look. Let's stand together and worship our faithful God by reading his word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'll begin in verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Lord, teach us today that if we're going to prioritize you, we must prioritize your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated this morning? Now, this morning, you're going to see on the screen... Um, you're going to have, we actually only have two major points, but inside those major points, we have got to discover what prioritizing Jesus's family is going to look like practically if the church is going to be healthy. And Paul really breaks this up. It's, it's really an easy outline when you see how he's telling the church that this should look. Because first, he talks about the relationship between the congregation and its ministers. The relationship between the congregation and its ministers. Watch what he says there in verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work and live in peace with each other. The relationship of the congregation and its ministers. We learn a lot about ministry in these two short verses. And we learn how the minister ought to relate to the congregation. But we also learn how the congregation ought to relate to the minister. This is a, this is a text that a lot of churches need to hear a sermon on. This is a, the, something that is absolutely essential to church health. We talk about so many things, but if the relationship between the ministers of the church and the people of the church is bad, it's going to be very, very difficult for anything else in the church to be good. So the church ought to understand, number one from this text, what it ought to expect from its ministers, but the ministers ought to be able to understand from this text what they ought to be able to expect from their congregation. And so, first of all, ministry requires hard work. Look at verse 12. Now we ask you to respect those who work hard among you. It's talking about the leadership of the church. It's talking about those that have been called to the pastoral ministry inside the church. Remember that at Thessalonica, many of these people, these are first-generation Christians. This is a first-century church. So many of the people that are called to be the pastors of the church got saved at the exact same time everybody else got saved. But someone inside the congregation had to rise up to the level of ministry, 
and be willing to take that mantle. And Paul says, we have left you, but since we have left you, we've tried to leave you in good hands, and they're doing the best that they can to lead you, but as they lead you, you love them. Now, isn't that just an amazing, amazing principle? He says, but you need to know a few things about ministry. Number one, ministry requires hard work. The minister needs to hear this and the congregation needs to hear this. I'll tell you, if ministry is not hard work, then it's not ministry. The ministry is not a bastion for the lazy. The ministry ought to be one of the most hard-working jobs that you will find. Not just because of the specific duties that it requires, but because in order to love people well, in order to love God well, it is taxing in a wonderful way. It is something that it will be placed on the minister that is a very difficult job. Now, when I say job, it's amazing that so, how often people, when they talk about the ministry, we talk about it in, in like it is a vocation that is separate from any other job. And in, in essence, that is true. But I want you to hear me out. The ministry is more than a job, but it is not less than a job. And what that means is it's going to require hard work for it to be done well. Number two, the ministry requires shepherding. Look at what it says. Those who are over you, you're to respect those, verse 12, who are over you in the Lord. Those who are over you. Now, there is a lot of misunderstanding about the relationship between a pastor and a church. You have two different sides, really, of the coin, and, and both of them are heretical. You have the side that says, well, if he is the pastor, then you do everything that the pastor says, and you don't question anything that the pastor says, and the pastor should be given absolute control and absolute authority over every aspect of the church. And then you have the other side that just says, we're not, we don't have to do anything that he says. We don't have to listen to anything that goes along with that. And what Paul says is that the ministry requires shepherding. When he says, yeah, over you in the Lord, remember what servant leadership looks like in the Bible. It's never because of title. It's never because of position. It's never because of authority. It's never because of power. Who does, who does Jesus say is going to be the greatest among you? The least, those who serve the most. If someone wants to be in the ministry so that they can have positional authority and positional power, they need to quit now. Because the issue is not that you would respect me because I was given a title or because I have a degree or that you would respect any of the ministers on staff because of that, but that a church should love and respect the people that are in ministry because those people serve them and because those people love them and because you reciprocate the feeling. And when those things happen, church health is promoted. Ministry requires hard work. It requires shepherding. And then verse 12. He says, they are over you in the Lord and they admonish you. They admonish you. Ministry requires admonishing. What is admonishing? Paul is simply talking about their biblical instruction. Now the word admonish, there are different words for, that is a different word than the word encourage. There is a need in the ministry to encourage people. There is a need in the ministry to be positive and to build people up. And when people are absolutely finding themselves on hard times, find a way to speak life and hope into that. But there's also a role in the ministry, and this is the part that people hate. 
That you are going to be called into the ministry and you are going to be a minister, you have to be willing to tell people things they do not want to hear. You ever heard anything from this pulpit that you didn't really love to hear? Has it ever stepped on your toes? Has it ever offended you? That means I'm doing my job. The role of the pastor is not to just scratch the itches of people that come in and allow them to feel good about everything that's going on in their life. The word admonish means that they have, people have to be corrected. They have to be rebuked. And if you preach the Bible, that happens. One of the reasons we walk through Bible books is so that as we get to those places, we, have to have, we offer no apologies when it confronts us at the place of our sin and at the place of our willful rebellion because it's not the pastor's fault. It's not the preacher's fault. It is the issue of what the text is driving forth in your heart and we come before the Lord. And so often people will say, we're thankful for a shepherd. And if you have one, whether or not you're a member of this church or you're just visiting or listening, if you have a shepherd that preaches the truth, then you ought to thank God for that. Because at some point, if all you hear is what you want to hear, you will never be changed by the Holy Spirit of God because you're not in the Word of God. The Word of God changes people. Hebrews 4, it cuts to the joint and to the marrow. We know that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And if it is wielded correctly by the called man of God, then it will require admonishing. Now, when we talk about that admonishing, the preacher's main role is to preach the Word. This seems to be misunderstood in modern society, that the pastor wears many hats. And let me tell you, the pastor wears many hats. I love what I do, but it blows my mind sometimes the amount of things I'm expected to be an expert in. When you really think about it, everything, everything from finance to personal counseling to public speaking to leading small groups to documents to every issue you could name, and you go, you could prepare 10 lifetimes and not be an expert in all the different venues that you're expected to know something about. But oftentimes, I think what happens is in pastoral ministry is that pastors can get distracted by all of those other things. And it's not that they're not important, but they all aren't the main thing. The main thing is the preaching of the Word of God. I'll hear people say sometimes, now, you know, he's a wonderful guy. He can't preach well, then he needs to find something else to do in ministry because the role of the minister is to preach the Word of God. I love to be with you and to hang out with you and to spend time with you and to minister to you. But the real issue is this is the opportunity where we all have the chance not only to be together, but in this 30 to 35-minute window, this is the opportunity where we can't let it go. We need to be biblical. We need to be what Spurgeon called when you cut us, you, we need to bleed bibline. It is the role of the pastor to preach the word. And by the way, people ask all the time about the authority of the pastor. Well, what is the authority of the pastor? Let me tell you how much authority I have. Zero. Did y'all hear me? Zero. You say, well, you ought to have some authority. I have no authority. But this has all the authority. And the reason I say that is, if a pastor demands that he be honored 
outside of biblical positions that he takes, that is not biblical authority. My opinions, my thoughts on things, the way I think things ought to go, all that's well and good. But everything that is not grounded in Scripture and does not have biblical authority, then it has no authority. Ministry requires admonishing. Number, number four, faithful ministers, it says, deserve respect. Verse 13, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. It, that's not complicated. If you have people in ministry that love you and do their jobs, then show them a little honor and a little respect. That's not hard. That's not difficult. The issue becomes that if we're just honest, pastors can be hard to deal with. Amen. You know why? Because I'm just like you. Born of the flesh. I've got a personality. I've got issues and problems of my own. I put my pants on one leg at a time. Sometimes I am just as wonderful to be around as anybody you'd ever want to know. But every now and then I have a bad day. I know none of you ever struggle with that. But I'll have you know that one of the things that the Bible makes clear is that every time the people of God are compared to an animal, there's a reason that they're referred to as sheep. And it's because, and I'm just shooting you straight because it's my job to admonish you. It's because sheep are the most stubborn, filthy animals that you could ever want to try to raise. They will wander off. They are obstinate. Oftentimes they don't want to listen. So what does that mean? That means that a congregation has to deal with a shepherd who's not perfect, and the shepherd has to deal with a bunch of sheep who aren't perfect. So once we get all that cleared up, we can all just love each other, and you can realize, hey, I love that pastor of ours. He's kind of messed up, but I love him. And I can go, that church of ours, guess what? <laughs> They're real messed up, but I love them. Because God called us to be together and to come together, and that's why it is that we respect each other. Now, for this to happen, for an unbelieving world, one of the reasons that I believe God's done so much at First Baptist Summit is because y'all have taken this command seriously. You love your ministers, and your ministers love you, and people see that, and they want to be a part of that. But if a church can't get along with its pastor, and its pastor hates the people, and the people hate the ministers that serve the church, I can tell you it doesn't matter what mission projects we have. It doesn't matter what we do with, from the youth ministry standpoint. It doesn't matter how many decorations we get for VBS or how fantastic the choir special is. If we don't love each other, and you don't love us as ministers, and we don't love you, the rest of it's a waste of time it's pretty simple what Paul's saying and so he says faithful ministers they deserve respect but then secondly Paul says it's not just about the relationship of the congregation and the ministers there is a definite relationship because there is a responsibility of the congregation to each other he moves now in verse 14 from talking about the congregation's relationship to the leadership to the congregation's relationship with each other. We urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everybody, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for want wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Number one, what's your responsibility to each other? Number one, to warn the idle. 
to warn the idle. Now, who are the idle? That's not really talking about the word there in Greek, that word idle, that's not lazy. That word is better understood as those people who are disorderly or unruly, the people who disrupt the peace of the church. These are people who fail to use their spiritual gifts. These are people who do not support the church financially. These are people who undermine leadership. Often these people are the ones who are the armchair quarterbacks who never get in the game, but want to always critique everyone else who's actually trying to do something. Most of the time, these people act like this because they're backslidden and living in sin. So it's easier to insult the people that are trying to live for the Lord than it is to actually live for the Lord and do something yourself. And Paul says it's the role, whether or not it's someone in the student ministry or whether or not it's an adult, that we have a responsibility to each other to warn people that act like that, to go to them in love and say, hey, some things need to change. came across a book years ago by Sebastian Younger. The title of the book is War. And he followed a platoon of U.S. soldiers that were stationed in a dangerous part of Afghanistan. And what he found out was it didn't matter the rank, that anyone in this entire platoon was allowed to rebuke anyone else in the platoon. And he found that interesting because sometimes you had privates that were saying stuff to people that were much higher rank than them. And the issue was because, and he made this perfectly clear in the book, that it wasn't just about your life, that it was the other man's life you were risking. Sometimes you might have a private go up to someone and say, hey, your shoelaces are untied. Be sure you button those up before we go out. And the reason was, was because the shoelaces are about more than you. Yes, you may trip and fall, but if you trip and fall, you could mess up this entire platoon. So yes, I will rebuke you, but I'm not just rebuking you to get in your business. I'm rebuking you because your business is my business and the way you live your life affects all of us. The church needs to understand that. We live in an individualistic age in which nobody thinks that anybody ought to be in anybody's business. And friends, I understand that to a point, but we also have to understand that we succeed together and we fail together. So as a church, we have to be involved with each other's lives and take responsibility for some of that. And if you're hurting, I ought to hurt for you. And if you're struggling, I ought to struggle with you. If you're succeeding, I ought to rejoice with you. And when that happens, the church begins to look like what the church is supposed to look like. So we warn the idle, but number two, we encourage the timid. We encourage the timid. Encourage the timid. That's about as clear from Scripture as I can do it. Who are the timid? It's those people that are discouraged. Sometimes it's people that are scared to try a new ministry. This is in all the time. Sometimes there's somebody that's been asked to teach or asked to serve or asked to sing, and, and they're, they're just timid about it. Well, well I, I, just, I just don't know. Maybe, you know, I, I, I'd like to go on a trip like that, but, but, but I'm just not sure. Well, I, I don't know if that's my spiritual gift. And sometimes we need people in the church who are going to come up to us and say something like this. I see God's call on you. I see how God has gifted you. I see your ability. I can hear you, and I know. I see how you are with people. I see how you are with kids. I see how you are around the rest of your friends. God's called you out. You don't need to be scared to do this. Let's just do it. And guess what? If you fail, I failed a thousand times so we can both say we failed, but at least we failed trying, right? 
We need people who encourage other people in the church. Sometimes it's the discouraged or those who are scared to try a new ministry. Sometimes it's the people who just fear change because they love tradition and they, their, their mantra is always, we want things the way they've always been. And I understand that to a point, but sometimes the, you're going to get what you've always gotten if you do what you've always done. And it's fine to love tradition if tradition is just knocking that out of the park. But when tradition is not doing what it needs to be, do, sometimes we need to say there might be a better way. And you don't need to be scared of that. We need to try some new things. There's some things we can't change, the gospel and the word of God. But everything else, it's on the table. So sometimes we need people in the church to encourage the other people people who are timid in the church. Most of you have never heard of the town Whit Spring, Arkansas, and I know why. It's population 100. Whit Springs, Arkansas has 41 kids in, all, in grades 7 to 12, but they somehow field sports teams. And several years back, they were going up against their rival in basketball, and they are getting absolutely destroyed. It's like 80-something to 30-something. Um, Whit Springs didn't bring a whole lot of athletic championships home. Uh, in fact, one year they had a valedictorian and a salutatorian, and it would have been easy to get one of the two because they were the only two kids in the graduating class. But Whit Spring, Arkansas fielded this little basketball team, and they're getting destroyed by their rival town. But on the team, there's a little guy by the name of Scotty Harmon. And towards the end of the game, it was obvious as there's minutes left in the second half. There was no coming back. It was over. And all of a sudden, everybody in the gym in Whit Spring, Arkansas, started chanting, Scotty, 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 Scotty. And you could hear the whole walls reverberating, Scotty, Scotty, Scotty. So eventually the coach called timeout. And he looked down the bench at Scotty, and he pointed at him. He said, it's your time. Now, what you guys don't know about Scotty is that Scotty had cerebral palsy. Scotty was been on the team for his whole life, but Scotty didn't get to get in a lot of games, but Scotty's number got called. And so Scotty checks into the game and Scotty's going crazy. He's just thrilled. And so the coach calls every one of them over to the side and he said, this game's over. If y'all were going to do anything, y'all had done something. Y'all hadn't done it. So the rest of this game isn't about you. The rest of this game's about Scotty. And he's going to be in the rest of the game. And if any one of you takes a shot besides Scotty, you won't quit running tonight. Scotty will take every shot. If you rebound it under the goal and you have an open layup, you kick it back out to Scotty and Scotty shoots. So the whole team embraced it. So the whole rest of the game, they played like they had never played before. They played defense like they had never played before. They rebounded like they had never played before. And every time it was get it to Scotty, set a pick for Scotty, and Scotty just starts chunking them up, chunking them up, chunking them up. Minutes pass, doesn't even come close to the goal. They keep rebounding. They keep feeding Scotty. And eventually, with just a couple of minutes left in the game, Scotty launches one from three. And I believe sometimes it divine intervention takes place because Scotty drains it. Boom. And when he drains it, even the opposing team went wild. The stands went wild. And you could hear everybody yelling, Scotty, Scotty, Scotty. And I thought about this as I'm reading about it. I, mean, I'm, those kind of, I love those kind of stories. And it kind of, you get that feeling and the lump in the back of your throat. And you just kind of want to cry. And you realize there's goodness left in the world. And that there are good people. And you just wish you could have been there for what that would have looked like. And, and I thought, you know, sometimes that's what the church 
church needs to look like. Because there are people that are struggling and people that have difficulties and people that have fallen. And sometimes the church needs to be the people who cry out, Scotty, Scotty. And we keep shooting and we keep getting back up and we keep trying. Maybe not because we're perfect or because we're an all-star, but because we have people behind us and people that believe in us. I want to be that kind of church and I want you to be that kind of church. That's what it looks like to encourage the timid. And then he says, help the weak. Help the weak. The weak are those that are struggling spiritually. They're struggling to abandon their sin. They struggle to accept God's will for their lives. Sometimes they struggle because they have doubts or they struggle with guilt. Sometimes the weak are those people that need a little extra attention. Sometimes they have to be brought along or they'll become stumbling blocks to the rest of the church. So what he's talking to, remember he's not talking to the ministers. He's talking to the church family. And he says it's your job to help the weak. Ross Duhat, in his book, Bad Religion, made this note. He said, there are millions of Americans that now pay professionals to listen to their everyday life problems. I'm not against counseling. Hear me out. But notice he's talking to the whole rest of the whole church. You don't need a counseling degree to be somebody's friend. I think somehow in the midst of, of, of a therapeutic world, we've kind of stepped back and said, whoo, whoo, now I'm not qualified for that. I'm not qualified for that. They need to go see a counselor. They need to go see a therapist. There is a role for that. But friends, there is a role for people to be friends with people and to talk with them and to share with them and to spend some time with them. And friends, we could learn a lot. The church in the United States could learn a lot from a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I have seen it help people over and over and over again. And I'm not telling you that I agree with every precept that they have. But what I can tell you is that an article in Wired Magazine did study after study after study to figure out why it was so successful. And after all of the studies, what they found out was that there is power in a small group of like-minded friends who provide support, honesty, and accountability. Now, that's not life-shattering, is it? People that come together to do life together and share with each other about their struggles and their problems and someone else to love on them and to walk alongside of them. Encourage the timid, help the weak. And then verse 14, what does it tell us to do? Be patient with everyone. I wish he'd left that out. How many of you are just naturally patient people? It just flows out of you. I don't like you. I want to be that way. And I hope God's working on me, but I can tell you he's not done with me yet. I've got a long way to go. And I've learned that if you work with people, people are frustrating. Dealing with people can be discouraging, especially when people bring the same junk over and over and over and over and over and over and that's enough. And it can become so discouraging. So if we're going to be what God wants us to be, we need the proverbial long fuse. We need a really long fuse. So how do we develop one of those? Well, I'll tell you how God's been working on me because God's conviction is so thick on my life about some of my shortcomings and sometimes my patience with things can 
run very, very thin. So God has been doing a very faithful, because our God is faithful, amen. He has been doing a faithful job of convicting me of how patient he has been with me over and over and over again. And if God can put up with me, then my fuse needs to lengthen with some of the people that he has blessed my life with, right? And it's a matter of how we deal with the people that God has blessed us with, being patient with everyone. And then finally, forgive each other, it says, and to treat each other with kindness. There's no place for retaliation. There's no place for personal vengeance inside the church. But try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. If there was ever just a simple statement in Scripture, if a church wants to be better, try to be kind to each other and to the people that go to your church and try to be kind to the people that don't go to your church. That's a great church growth strategy. Isn't that simple? That is so simple. So I'll finish this sermon this week. And I, I had my notes, and, and I was going over it this week, and early part of the week, I, I was reading through and, and trying to make a few changes, and all of a sudden, boom, this hit me. Just overwhelmed by what I'm about to tell you. Re, after reading this passage over and over and over again this week, I just was overcome with thankfulness for this church. As I read through this list and as I see all of the things that we are called to do, are we perfect? <laughs> no. No. Are we knocking it out of the park on every single point? No. But thank God the Lord has allowed me to pastor a church that absolutely understands these principles. I cannot tell you over the last 17 years of my life, I could not have asked for a church that would have loved me and loved my family more. I couldn't have asked for a church that would have loved each other more. I couldn't have asked for a church that came together and respected each other and encouraged each other. I can honestly say that I am thankful to have been in a place that when I hear horror stories and war stories about churches, I can look at people and say, I don't really know anything about that. And again, it's not that we've got it all figured out. But friends, I'm glad we're in this together. And I wouldn't want to be in it with anybody else but you. All of you. All of you. Because we need each other. And the church is the body of Christ. And if I'm going to love Jesus, I've got to love his family. Back to the big idea. If someone were to walk up to me and say, Hey, Larry, we just think the world of you think you're a great guy, love being around you, love your leadership, love your preaching, just great to be a friend of yours, so thankful for you. But I can't stand your wife. Now let me ask you this. You think that person and I would be okay? In case you're wondering, the answer is no. Why? Because you can't insult my wife without insulting me. And if you love me, you're going to love my wife. If you love me, you're going to love my family, my kids. Here's the point I'm making. It's not about my individual family. But if you say you love Jesus, then you have no church choice but to love the church. Because the church is the family of God. 
You cannot have Jesus without having his family. So I invite you today to be a part of the family of God. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We want to be that. Maybe you're looking for a real, honest relationship with Christ. Maybe you want into the family. You want to be adopted as a son of God. Then that can happen today. Or maybe it is today that you just step forward or right where you are and thank God for this church. Thank God for what it's done in your life. Thank God for what it's done in your family's life. And thank God that he has allowed us to become, be a part of something so incredible. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.